Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. How is everyone doing? Hope you're well. The air conditioner is on. It's just really hot. So again, welcome to those who are watching online. Glad you guys can join us this way. Uh, Let's pause and let's pray as we get started this morning. Father, we are grateful for an opportunity once again to gather, and we do so in the name of Jesus desiring to represent you, to learn about you, to follow you more dearly and closely. Ask that this time would be rich with your Spirit's work in our lives, and we welcome it, and we look forward to it, and we ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of things. Hope you guys enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Uh, Stay hydrated out there. Um, also reminding you that we are here because of your gifts, your tithes and offerings. For those who are listening, we are able to stay on the air because of uh, people who are donating so that we can. And those things can be found out how to at our website, thegenesisstory.com, if you would continue to want to support. Um, this week, I finally got my cast off. Um, I was supposed to get it off on Tuesday, and I was so looking forward to it. I mean, I was counting down four days, 72 hours, 48 hours. It was down to the hour I was counting down. The first week, it wasn't too bad, but the last two weeks, I had, the, I had a temporary cast on for a week, and then I had the last cast on for three weeks. And the last like week and a half, I'd say, it really started bugging me. I mean, not just physically, it was kind of bugging my wrist where, you know, bones were hitting, but I started getting like claustrophobic about it. I don't know if you guys can relate to that. It's kind of like I can't sleep with socks on or I feel like I'm suffocating. And so having the cast on, I just started feeling like I wanted to just like move my fingers apart and I can't. And that's all I could think about is how do I get my fingers to move apart? And so, you know, I could scratch. I had, you know, the little zip ties were great for itching, but I just wanted air in there. And so I was having a hard time sleeping the last few nights, actually. Um, I would just stay up all night playing games, watching TV, watching stupid YouTube videos, watching alligators and jaguars fight each other. Who knows? You know, anything to just kind of entertain my mind. And, And then looking forward, counting down, couldn't wait to get this off. And then I 
Got a call on Monday from Kaiser. It said on my phone, I thought, great, they're confirming my appointment tomorrow. And the lady on the phone says, hi, this is Kaiser. I just wanted to let you know that we're going to have to reschedule your appointment. It's going to have to be on Friday. That's the soonest time we have available. And I just did everything I could without sounding like a total baby to say, I can't do this. I, I need this cast off. It's really bugging me. And she says, I'm so sorry. I did everything I could to look into it, but I... There's nothing else, so set the appointment for Friday at 4 o'clock. And that's all I could think about was, how do I get this thing off? And so I got home, and I'm thinking, I could take it off. <laughs> I'm thinking I can get some, you know, tin snips, and I'll cut right here, and I'll open it up a little, and I can slide the thing out. How hard could it be? If not, I can, if that doesn't work, I've got a hacksaw. I'll just get the blade and cut and to make sure I don't cut. You know, I'm just figuring it all out. And so finally, I decide to call a, a medical professional who I know. And I ask them, how hard is it to get a cast off? And they said, it's pretty tough. And I tell them my dilemma. I said, listen, I'm going crazy with this thing on. I want to get it off. I'm thinking I can just get these snips and I can do this and I can get it off. And they say, I think... It's going to hurt a lot if you do that. Trying to squeeze it out of where that wrist is, I, I don't think you should do that. And I said, well, I can't really handle this anymore. And they tell me, well, what you can do is go to urgent care and tell them this. And I'm not going to tell you what they told me to tell them. <laughs> but they said, if you tell them this, they will have to take the cast off. Don't tell them you're feeling anxious They'll just give you anxiety medicine. I get anxious thinking about taking anxiety medicine. Don't tell them it hurts. They'll just give you pain medicine. Tell them this. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it because otherwise I'm going to get hacksaw and I'm going to cut this thing off. I'm going crazy. And so early Tuesday morning, urgent care opens at 9. I get there at 8.30. I'm number 30 in line because there's already 30 people to get in line and I'm like, oh, man. So I'm waiting, and I'm just like, I'm rehearsing in my mind. This is what I'm going to say. I'm pretending it's true, right? No, I'm, I'm being honest with you guys. I'm, I'm telling you all my, my stuff here. And, and so I finally get to the check-in, and I say, hi. I give them my card. I'm here. What seems to be the problem? And I tell them the spiel. This is what's going on. And they say, well, you have an appointment Friday. I know, but this is happening. And so she gets on the phone and she calls the orthopedics, says, yeah, they said this is happening. Yeah, they're supposed to be here Friday. Okay. All right. I'll send them down. Hangs up the phone and says, go on down to station 34. Go and wait. They'll call you in. They didn't get a, you know, uh, they didn't take my money, which I was surprised because they always take my money, but there was no copay or anything at that time. I just go down there. I'm waiting. I see my name on the screen, and a couple minutes later, they say, I'm Scotty. That's me. I go walking in. They sent me in the room. They say, what's the problem? I tell them the problem, you know, that I was told to tell them, and they're checking me out. They're doing my pulse, and they're like, everything seems okay. <laughs> it's like, what can I tell you? You know, this is this is what's going on. And they say, okay, uh, just a minute. We're going to have someone come in here, and they're going to cut the cast off. 
And I'm like, yes. You know, I just said, oh, okay. Um, so they come in there, they cut the cast off, and I'm like, free at last. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, and it hurts because I haven't been able to bend my hand for three weeks, right? So everything's a little painful, but I don't care. I'm just so happy. I can see all my fingers, and I, I, I'm loving life right now. And so then they say, okay, we need to send you to get an x-ray, which is what they were going to do Tuesday anyway, right? Take the cast off and x-ray it and send me home. So now I'm going, okay. They hand me a card. It's a red card. And they say, don't wait in line because now the line's going to be longer. Just go straight to the counter and give them this card. It's a fast pass. I got a fast pass. At Kaiser, I go walking in. I feel terrible, uh, just like at Disneyland. You know, here I am going on the Matterhorn. Um, and so I get in, and then they send me back, and they do the x-ray, and they tell me, you know, you got to wear this brace for a little while longer and do this kind of exercise, and everything should be good. And so I ended up getting my cast off. I ended up all the things that were bugging I slept so well that night. I wasn't worried about all the things that were troubling me. If you understand how things work, right? If you have a knowledge about the system, you're able to get more out of it. And I feel like that's true with scripture too. If you have a bigger understanding of it, you won't be trapped in a mindset that holds you captives to a certain ideology that doesn't fit and doesn't work well. And having that information gives you the freedom to make more choices. I know it's not a perfect analogy, but I thought it was good and it happened to me recently this week. So, <laughs> and so by way of review, this is what we've been doing with the book of Genesis, right? We are looking at how this book has been written, why it has been written. And the, the book of Genesis, I don't want to say was written, but was compiled, put together uh, through oral tradition, through writings, we don't know, but we know that it took place after the Babylonian captivity and that they are looking back and telling the story of their future from that position. And we know that because some of the things that we see in the book of Genesis that I've mentioned, before there were kings in Israel, how would they know there was going to be kings in Israel if it was written? Was it just some prophetic, oh, we know there's going to be kings? No, they're talking about it because they're remembering this through that lens. Or being obedient to all his ways and statutes. What ways? What laws? What statutes? We don't have those until Mount Sinai. Well, they're talking about them because they already know they're there and they're looking backwards forward. And having this knowledge gives us the ability to step back and look at the, the book with a deeper understanding, an understanding of the story that's trying to be told. For example, in chapter 26, verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. We know, based on archaeological evidence, and based on other writings, that the Philistines were not in this region at this time. It's not a problem, though, because they are looking back, thinking the Philistines were there, and they're telling the story as if they were there in that region. And it's not a problem to them, and it shouldn't be a problem to us. They had no Google search. When did the Philistines enter this area? 
They don't know. As far as they knew, they were there. But now we know years and years later through archaeological finding and different things that it was not till later on. We also know by just the language itself, the Hebrew that this is written in is different than the early writings that they have of the Hebrew language that would have taken place back at the times of Abraham. It's like us reading William Shakespeare and comparing the works of Shakespeare to Harry Potter. I don't know what else to compare it to, right? A popular story. If you read these two writings, you're going to see a different style of writing. And we might be able to copy Shakespeare's writing because we know what it is, but Shakespeare could not copy the writing of today because there was no knowledge of what it would be. The writing that the Hebrew scriptures that we have, the majority of what we have here, at least through Genesis, is written in a later language. So we know that it took place at a later time. All this to tell us that again, it's not a problem. What it is, is a point. And the point is this. These stories were written with something in mind and we're getting closer and closer to what that is. We've talked about how early on the story of Adam and Eve was a, a symbol of Israel, how they were disobedient and exiled from the garden. We talked about Cain and Abel, how Cain was disobedient and exiled from the family. And we see these stories that are are images of Israel, right? The, The Tower of Babel, the Babylonians causing havoc on the known world, all of them represented Israel. And now we come to the story of Jacob, who represents Israel literally because he is Israel. And so these stories are leading to these points of who they are and where they come from. And it shouldn't surprise us that this story begins with sibling rivalry. It's been something that has been taking place throughout all these stories. Isaac and Rebecca have two sons. Just for your information, men beget children Women bear them in the Bible. So if you see those terms, that's how you know what's going on. But there's a problem. And again, nothing new here. We've seen it before. We see the the rivalry that takes place and how the older ends up being surpassed by the younger. We saw it with Cain and Abel. After Cain killed his brother Abel, Seth became the preeminent one. And that story takes place there. We see it with Isaac being chosen over Ishmael. Later, Joseph over his older brothers. Moses chosen over Aaron. David crowned king, even though he was the youngest of all brothers. This is their story, and it keeps happening over and over again. God preferring the younger brother to the elder. And so, Rebecca gives birth to twins. And you guys know the story. You've heard it before. Esau is born first and Jacob is born second, grabbing onto his heel. And we see that Esau is kind of the, the tough guy. He, he's the hairy hunter, right? His name means Harry. Who names their kid Harry, right? How Harry is a baby that you name him Harry. I've seen babies with lots of hair, but they just said Harry, right? That's what they call him. And so Esau's name means Harry, and we see that Jacob's kind of more of the homebody, and we see that Rebecca takes kind of a shining to, to Jacob is on his side. And then the story goes on where 
Esau's out hunting for game and Jacob's there and he's making some stew and Esau's famished. He says, give me some stew. And Jacob, being a nice brother, says, sure, help yourself. No, he doesn't. He says, okay, you want some? I want your birthright. What is a birthright? It's the right of the firstborn. I want what belongs to the firstborn. I want you to give it to me. And Esau, for whatever reason, says, okay, no big deal. He doesn't either care, doesn't think he's going to fall through, but he says, okay. So he gives him his birthright for food. As the story goes on, and we see Isaac is getting old, and he knows he's coming to the end of his life, and so he's going to bless the firstborn and give him his birthright. So he tells Esau, go out and make me my favorite meal and then bring it back to me and I will give you the blessing. Rebecca hears it, goes and tells Jacob, hey, now's your chance. Go in there. I'll make the food. And you go in there. And he says, how can I go in there? I'm not like my brother. My brother's hairy. She goes, don't worry. I've got that covered. We're going to cover you with goat skin. And then we're going to figure this out. And, And so they do this and they go in there and, and Jacob says, hi, I'm Esau. And Isaac's like, you have the, the voice of Jacob, come here. And he feels, he goes, my Esau, what hairy goatskin arms you have, right? He, he just pulls the, the goatskin over his blind eyes and eats the food and gives him the blessing. And scene, Jacob leaves. New scene, here comes Esau. Dad, I've brought the food you wanted. What? How can this be? I just gave the blessing to you. He goes, that wasn't me. And he's, I know what has happened. It's your brother, Jacob. And for some reason, this whole birthright thing can't be revoked. You can't take back what has been pulled over your eyes. And so he says, well, is there any blessing for me, dad? He goes, yes, there is a blessing. But it really isn't much of a blessing. Verse 39 of chapter 27. When Esau asked for the blessing, his father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword. You will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Great, that's my blessing. And so now again, if you're trying to keep score on who's the good guy and who's what's fair, you're probably reading a different story because there are no good guys. There are no fair. This is very messy from the very beginning. There's all kinds, and it's just going to get worse. Just a heads up. It's not going to get nice and neat later on. This back and forth between two brothers is actually a description of the problems between the two nations, Edom and Israel, and the tense relationship that they have But during the reign of Jehoram of Judah, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a kingdom of their own. That happens in 2 Kings 8. Isaac's so-called blessing to Esau foreshadows a later political reality. And we've seen that happen other places. And so again, remember, a story is being told about a story that is going to be fulfilled. Esau feels cheated, And he says, my brother's a dead man. I'm going to kill him. Rebecca gets word of this. And so Esau's waiting for Isaac to die so he can kill his brother or the right opportunity. And Rebecca says that Jacob has to go to my father, Laban, because I don't want him marrying one of these women here. 
these Canaanite women. So let's send him out so that he can be with my brother and he can marry. And it's her way of saving Jacob's life. So Jacob runs from his angry, hairy brother to Uncle Laban's house. And there he has a dream and calls the place Bethel, which means house of God. Because here, this dream, there is a ladder going from heaven to earth, and at the top is Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't reprimand Jacob for being a liar, but he tells the promise of Abraham to him and tells him this promise is your promise. Jacob's children will be uncountable and a blessing to all the people of earth. What's the meaning of the dream? Well, there's a couple ideas. Uh, One purpose is to emphasize that God has chosen Jacob in spite of all the lies and deceitfulness to be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's given Israel's less than, you know, stellar history uh, and ancestry like Jacob a blessing, and he still meets God's approval. In other words, what I was promising to Abraham and the covenant I made with him, I am now fulfilling that in you. Another idea can be that, you know, it's just a way for them to see that, like everyone of his ancestors is flawed, that screwing up is a deep part of Israel's genes, and that God's carrying them along regardless, and that's deeper still. Also, it's the purpose of the story is to explain how that name came there. It used to be called Luce, now it's called Bethel. How did that happen? Here's how it happened. Others have gone on to say, well, it's a symbol of Jesus is the ladder between God and man. And that's a pretty picture, but we see nothing in the passage itself that talks about a Messiah. And so that's something we're putting in there. Again, all these things are ideas that we have that we can wrestle with, that we can look at, that we're not constrained to hold one thought or another, but we're able to look at all of them. Jacob makes it to Laban's house and he falls for Rachel and he promises to work for Laban for seven years so that he can marry his cousin. Have I mentioned that this is an ancient writing, okay? So we read something like that and we're like, okay, this is how that works in that family, right? No, this is just how things were at that time. Jacob now had either had too much wine at the party or has inherited his father's blindness because he ends up going in with Leah, sleeping with her, the older sister, instead of Rachel, He wakes up in the morning and says, what has happened? What have you done? And Laban says, you know our custom. You should have known this. We always have to marry the older first before we can marry the younger. But I'll give you an idea here. You can work another seven years and tag on to the other seven years, and then I can give you Rachel as well. And now at this point, you're like, who do I feel sorry for? Right? It's like, do I feel sorry for Jacob? Not that much. He's kind of a scoundrel already. Do I feel sorry for Rachel? Yeah, kind of. Do I feel sorry for Leah? Yeah, really. But then before you go to that place, we're going to see later on in this story that these two wives have this competition going with who can get more children, and they start throwing concubines at Jacob to get more kids. Now who do you feel sorry for? The, the, you know, the handsmaids who are innocent pawns. It, it just keeps going flowing downhill. Have I mentioned recently, this is an ancient and diverse story because it shows up through things like this. And if we don't remember that, these kinds of things 
are going to be off-putting, and for a reason. They should be. But remember, this is an ancient story being told. Now, it's interesting because Jacob used Esau's urges to manipulate him out of his birthright. And now Jacob, driven by his own urges, is tricked into giving the elder sibling really what she deserved. He agrees to the other seven years, and it's a whole mess from the beginning. Jacob's story, with all its shady characters, plays like a reality show. And and at the end of it, we finally have 12 sons. The nation of Israel is born out of family dysfunction, which will be with them throughout their existence. This is how it started, and it continued. Now, if you were telling the story of your family... I don't know if you'd want to leave all of these things in there, right? You'd want to clean up some things. I mean, I know all our families have these secrets, right? We have, whenever I get together with my cousin, we always reminisce and talk about, oh, remember when this happened with uncle or auntie or with, you know, grandma or grandpa, and remember how this, well, this is what was really going on. I'm not going to give you guys the dirt of my family, but anyway, there's all this stuff that happens, and every family has stuff like that. And so we see it taking place here. And so Jacob makes that deal with Laban. And as time's going on, he's, gonna, he's like, I got to get out of here. And Laban says, you can't go. I'm blessed because of you. I need you to stay here. And then Jacob says, I'll make you a deal then. I can stay here if all the, the animals that are born have stripes or spots, then they become mine and the others become yours. And Laban says, sure, that's the deal. And Jesus Jacob says, you can trust me. Sure, I can, right? And so Jacob does this thing where he, you know, strips bark in front of these animals when they're mating, and they give birth to a more, you know, spotted and striped thing. And it's like, okay, that's, again, weird. But again, remember, this is an ancient story. These are stories being told. And what's really being told here is that Jacob is being, quote, blessed. He is getting an abundance, And that's something that is being noticed. And finally, Jacob says, I've had enough of this. I've got a lot. I just need to get out of here. And so he takes off on Laban. He sneaks out and runs away. Now, he sneaks out. It's not like they lived in the same house, right? It's not like, shh, come on, get the stuff, get the kids. We're leaving, right? They lived in some place and Laban lived in some place else. But then one day they go, hey, have you guys seen Jacob? No, he's gone. He took the flocks, took the wives, took the kids, and they're out of here. And so Laban goes in hot pursuit after Jacob, but it's not because he left. It's because someone took his household idols. And that should strike us. What in the world is Laban doing with household idols? And who took it? Well, we find out later it was Rachel. Why would Jacob's wife, of all people, want these idols around? Weren't Abraham and Isaac both careful to get wives from their family members so that they wouldn't be f- have this problem with idolatry? They would be faithful to Yahweh? These people are just a, heart weight, a heartbeat away from being the father of all nations. And here's happening the problem that would be happening with them Throughout their history, they're still dabbling with other gods. 
Now, the prohibition against idolatry doesn't happen until Mount Sinai and Exodus. We could excuse their behavior as ignorance, but if Israel is shaping its story as we see it is, why not leave this out? Or at least present it differently. The deceit, the disbelief, the idolatry. The author is trying to convey something. They could have left it out. You know, First and Second Chronicles, they don't talk about King David and Bathsheba. They're painting a, a brighter picture of him. They could have done this, but they didn't. The answer, again, is that the story in Genesis mirrors Israel's later history. The Israelites from the beginning to the end are not models of virtue and faithfulness to God. Yet how does God react to all this? God does not overlook these misdeeds as clueless, you know, parent might allow his children to get away with something. Rather, God disciplines the people and then presses on with the plan anyway, even with a less than stellar cast of people. God looks past the inadequacies of his people to execute his plan to bring order back into the chaotic world. Just like he did at the very beginning where there was chaos, there was darkness, and God brought order. This isn't going to stop God's agenda. And he's still going to push into these people to accomplish it. Which is a story that I think resonates with a lot of us. It does with me. God's persistence in my life, God's persistence in the life of those I know, God's faithfulness, love, showing mercy in spite of ourselves so many times. God will always live up to the agreement that he made. And he's doing so with the agreement he made with Abraham, even to a people who are in exile. Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, married into a family that has household idols. That's there. Mingling with foreign gods is a constant issue for Israel later on and the ultimate reason why they wound up in Babylon. The constant struggle is already reflected here in the story of Jacob. They are telling the story of the character of God who is compassionate and faithful, abounding in mercy, a God they would need and a God that we need still. This is a hopeful story to people who find themselves in a similar place. Look at what God did. He was faithful in spite of this. Laban pursues them, says, where's my household idols? They search everything and they're going to go check for them under Rachel's horse or whatever she was sitting on. And she says, I can't get up. It's that time of month and I can't get up. And so they leave her alone. She gets away with it. And then Jacob is back to Bethel, is going back to where he actually left his brother Esau. And we see in chapter 32, verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in their land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord. 
that I may find favor in your eyes. When the message returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Doesn't sound good, right? It's like, okay, it's happening. And as Jacob waits, there is this incident that happens. He has a wrestling match with a man. At least that's what it says at first. And it happens all night where they're wrestling, going back and forth. And later in chapter 20, or 32, verse 26, we read, after this has gone all night, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak, which is weird. Like, is this a vampire kind of thing? You know, it's like, what's going on here? But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What the heck, right? Again, a strange, strange story. This episode is puzzling. A man attacks Jacob all night and can't overpower him and yet just touches him once and cripples him. Like, why didn't he do that at the beginning, right? Couldn't you, couldn't you have done that? What's the whole point of this? What's happening? Jacob appears to know this is not just a normal fight. He tells the man he won't let him go unless he blesses him. He finally agrees to that. He blesses Jacob by changing his name to Israel, which means he strives with God. The very name of God's people becomes a window of things to come. In their very name, the Israelites make playing in public that they see themselves as a people that struggle with God. The struggle will take on many dimensions. Job struggles with God's justice. The writer of Ecclesiastes struggles with God's unreliability. The psalmists struggle with God's wonder out loud. Where are you when I need you most? This is not a people who see themselves on top of the world, but as a wandering, wondering people who struggle with their faith. I like that. I like that. Jacob seems to know this isn't just some neighborhood shepherd bully picking a fight with him, but a divine being as he renames the place Peniel, which means face of God. And like the fathers of old, the Israelites are defined by their struggle with God. And like Jacob, they intend to hold on to God so they can be blessed. Israel is determined to stay in their struggle with God for as long as it takes. Even exile, they will struggle through. However utterly discouraging it might be, it will not dissuade them. And things go well with Esau, and Esau refuses to take the gifts that Jacob offers, finally does because Jacob just is insisting on it. And the very thing that divided them, this inheritance and having things, is now something that they want the other to have. I want you to have this blessing. No, no, I've blessed enough. I want you to have this blessing. Maybe Israel is starting to behave like Israel should, to be a blessing to all nations. 
And Jacob's now a wealthy man, no longer afraid of his brother, settles in Canaan, Canaan, buys some land, digs a well, settles there. We'll see not everyone's happy about that. And at the end of Israel's life, he moves from Shechem and returns to Padam Aram, where his name had been changed, and all is well. The command to be fruitful and multiply is repeated, as is the promise of Canaan as their perpetual home. God's dual promise of people and land is still on. The story ends with a list of Israel's 12 sons and account of the death of Rachel, then Isaac, and the last sentence ends on a hopeful note of reconciliation. Isaac is buried by both his sons, Israel and Esau. The nation is born, and we're ready to move forward in the story. When I step back and, and look at all these things, I see the mess of humanity. I, I, I see the absurdity that's happening in these relationships between siblings. And, and I see the belittling of people. And then I see these promises that are still idealistic for us today. What would happen if a nation existed to bless other nations in the world? What if we had that mentality? We are here so that everyone else could be blessed. We are not here to be the strongest, most powerful. We are here so that we can help. What if everyone had that? Oh my gosh, everything would be better. It's still idealistic. It's still something that we haven't achieved. And you might look and say, man, what was happening with these you know, wives and, and their struggle and competition and handing them handmaids and look at the lies and look at the deceit and all these things. And then comes these promises that are huge and still beyond us. That's what we see here. And, and that's the struggle. And that's the beauty that we find in scripture. And so I hope you're encouraged by these things. I know I am. I love reading these things and I encourage you to go through these stories because I just gave you a you know, brief synopsis of all these things to try and get to these points. But man, some of the dialogue is great. Hearing Rachel get mad at Jacob because she's not having any children. He's like, gets mad at her. What do you want me to do about it? Well, here, take my handmaid. He's like, what do you want me to do? It's just, it's, I'm telling you, TV has nothing on the Bible on some of these things. But there's something more being told as well that I hope we're able to grab onto. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories. Thank you for the raw reality of them. And thank you for those things that are still divine. May we continue to struggle even as Jacob had to. And may our names be changed to welcome and lay hold of that struggle. May we see ourselves as a people who are in this area of wrestling, area of wanting, area of desiring discovery of who you are and your desires in our lives still today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May we continue to struggle with God. May we recognize the freedom we have to struggle 
as we desire to understand him more fully. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Welcome for you guys to stay here. If you have some questions, thoughts you want to throw into the mix, again, thank you guys. God bless you. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.